Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to the 127th Psalm, Psalm 127. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word here this morning, just go ahead and grab the Pew Bible in front of you and you can open up there to page 713 in the Pew Bible. 713 in the Pew Bible. As you're opening up there, I would ask you if you would please uh, pray uh, for my wife and her family. Whitney's grandfather, Jim Gunner, passed away Friday night. Uh, and uh, he and Whitney were very close. And you know Whitney's mom, Vanessa, who's a member here now. And she uh, has been Papa's caretaker now for about five years. And then also Whitney's uncle and other uh, cousins and brother. If you, if you would, just pray for them. Uh, during this time, the funeral is this afternoon in Boaz, and I'll be preaching that funeral. And uh, so just please pray for us as we lay Papa to rest. And he was a, a, such a huge figure in, in their family and in all of our lives. And so please pray. And if you would, just in particular, pray for Whitney and Vanessa, who you know so well. Thank you. We, we appreciate you for that. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading the words of our God. Solomon writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Not right now, mind you, but he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way that we can bring that glorious truth to bear on every text of Scripture. And how every text of Scripture points us to what Jesus has done for us. God, would you open our hearts and minds today to receive your word and to be changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Cars. Have any of you guys ever heard of the movie Cars? Let's see. Show of hands if you've seen Cars before. See some hands over here, right here. We got some folks. And uh, over here, I think there's a little guy over here that's seen Cars once or twice. Let's see. Yep, there he is. And uh, I love the movie Cars. Cars, for those of you who have not seen Cars, is a Pixar animated movie about a hotshot rookie race car named Lightning McQueen. And so he's quickly rising up the ranks of the world of racing. And pretty soon he's going to see all of his wildest dreams come true when he wins the cup and he gets a huge endorsement deal. Right so far, Ford? Is that got it? Okay, good. However, there's a problem. Lightning McQueen is full of himself. He's 
prideful. And so his pride and his hubris and his desire to win, finally, as he's pushing forward when he shouldn't be driving and, and making his, his uh, hauler card take him to, to the cup when he shouldn't be, they ought to be resting. Instead, he falls asleep and he falls out the back of the truck and he finds himself in a sleepy, forgotten town called Radiator Springs. And through this, there's a big accident, and he tears the town to pieces, he ruins the road, he messes everything up. Everyone outside the world thinks he's just missing, but he's actually there being forced to fix the mess that he's made. The thing is, though, what does Lightning McQueen get in Radiator Springs? He gets a girlfriend, right? He gets friends, he gets a mentor a lot of things but most importantly what lightning mcqueen gets if you look at the difference yeah mater that's right that's a friend that's right thank you for it i knew this was going to happen and so i just it's just i knew it was a risk i had to take but more than any of that what he gets is something called humility he becomes humbled he he, he gets a big dose of humility here he is, a big fancy race car in sort of a podunk town that's been forgotten. Here he is, a big fancy race car who's in a place doing hard manual labor that he feels like is beneath him. But what he learns in the process is how important humility is. We all know that humility is important. We don't always value it like we should as a culture, but we all recognize it's something we ought to have. It's something we ought to do. It's sort of the, the thing that we always have in the back of our mind. I really ought to be more humble than I am. We know it's important and we like it when we see it, but so often we hate the process of becoming humble. But as Christians, we must remember that the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that one of the most important things we can cultivate in our lives as Christians is humility. The Bible says everything that comes from pride is sin. Everything that's not from faith is sin. And to have faith in God means naturally we must be humble before God. Every time you're confronted with a temptation, you are making a choice between pride and humility. You're making the choice between whether you're going to do things your way or you're going to do things God's way. Here in this psalm, Solomon, who probably had more occasion and more reason to be prideful than anyone in the history of the world. Many of us are gifted, but usually, you very rarely meet somebody who's got every kind of gift you can imagine. But Solomon is what he's already alluded to this morning. Solomon had it all. He had it all. He had all the money. He had all the wisdom. People literally came from all over the world just to hear him talk, just to hear his wisdom, to see all that he had. And you can see, if you read about Solomon's life, if you read about Solomon's life, you can see how Solomon gave in to some of the temptations that I think he's warning against in this psalm. In fact, Solomon wrote, I believe, the Proverbs, and certainly wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and I believe wrote this psalm. But I would go as far as to say that Solomon's life, in and of itself, is a proverb that demonstrates the truth of what he's trying to tell us here. Here in this psalm... Solomon addresses the temptations, and this isn't all the temptations. You know, one of the funny things about pride is you can be prideful about anything. Anything. 
I went to seminary uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a great school, and I met some really good and godly men there. But one of the things uh, I look back on now and think is so funny are some of the things people are prideful about in seminary. You know, I've met people in seminary who are prideful about how good they were at reading Greek. Now, that tells you something about pride, doesn't it? If you can be prideful about literally the nerdiest thing imaginable, that tells you something about pride. Solomon addresses temptations to pride in our own lives. What we build, what our legacy is, how we're protected, how we're provided for, what our family looks like. We just did a new church directory, and you know, it's easy to look at those, those Olin Mills pictures, you know, and just thought, wow, that's a family. Wow, aren't I something? I want to show you this morning three practical ways that you can walk in humility before God. Nothing in this psalm is something that Solomon mentions. None of, none of, none of the things that he mentions are things that are inherently sinful or wrong. They're, they're good things. But here we see a foil, a protection against idolatry if we will walk in humility before God and dependence on God. How will we live? Will we live dependent on God or will we try to live independent of God, against God. Three practical ways this morning that I think you can walk in humility before a holy and good God. Here's the first. First way, first, first point this morning is this. My hope and my prayer is that you would depend on God for provision and protection. Depend on God for provision and protection. Unless the Lord, verse 1, builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Some of us build houses, and some of us have built our houses, but most of us buy houses these days. But, but I want you to understand that that this idea of building a house in, in the Old Testament, it carries with it a, a, an intentional double meaning. That, that there's an intentional sort of play on words here. And, and we see that as the psalm concludes and begins to talk about children and building a household. This, this word stands in not only for a literal dwelling place, but it is also figurative for the household as a whole. We, we, we do similar things. You say, something's just not right in that house. What we don't mean is there's a crack in the foundation, right? We don't believe in poltergeist or something like that. We don't think it's haunted. What do we think when we say that? We mean something's wrong in that family, that there's something that's not going right. Something's off in the family. Same way here. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake. In vain. This is extremely important for Solomon. It's extremely important for Solomon because Solomon's life is not just about being king of Israel. Solomon's life is about being the recipient and the avenue for the blessings that God had promised to Abraham and then to David. These covenantal blessings. What did God promise Abraham? 
God, God promised Abraham that, that he, he and his people would be God's people in God's place under God's rule. And, and that those people would, would number like the sand on the seashore, all the stars in the heavens. That they would grow. And that they'd be in his place under his rule. And then God renewed that same promise that he made to Abraham to Solomon's father, David. And when he renewed that promise, he also made a promise that there would always be one from David's house who sat on the throne of Israel. He promised David a descendant who would be an eternal king. I think if we look through the Psalter, we see David believing exactly that. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He did not allow his Holy One to undergo Decay, David says in the Psalms. And so I think what Solomon is doing here is not just saying, you know, if, if God doesn't make your house good, it won't be good. But he's also saying, I'm king in Israel, and I'm meant to be an avenue of the blessings of God, and I'm meant to be a recipient of the promises of God. I, I, I have a central place in the economy of God's promises and God's fulfillment of those promises. And I must recognize, I, Solomon, in all my glory and splendor, with all my wisdom, with all my might, with all the things I have, unless God does it, it won't get done. And didn't God use a fascinating way to do it? Because it wasn't long after Solomon that things really went south for the line of David. And things were bad for a long time before they got good again. Ultimately, if God's promises to David are going to be fulfilled, Solomon is saying it is God who will fulfill them. And so we think about Solomon, and we think about what Solomon's saying, and then we try to consider then what's, what's going on here as this psalm is read and sung by God's people. I, I want you to back up just a little bit and see something. If you look in your Bible here, it'll probably have in bold letters... Uh, something the editors of your Bible put in there to kind of help you know which psalm's which. Mine says, unless the Lord builds the house. Anybody else's have that, something like that in there? Well, then there's a one big old 127 there. And then right next to it, in uh, small caps, what does it say? A song of ascents of Solomon. Now, I, I would argue that that, portion there is actually part of the inspired text. I, I think that's very, they're very intentionally. And as you read through the Psalms, I would encourage you to look at those and, and, and understand those and, and use that data to help you understand the Psalms. It's an interesting thing there, a song of ascents. From the 120th Psalm to the 134th Psalm, the superscription, that little section of each Psalm says that, a song of ascents. And it's our understanding that that group of Psalms was meant to be sung as God's people marched to Jerusalem. For the different festivals, for different things that would happen, God's people chose these Psalms to sing a song of ascent. So they're walking up to Jerusalem, they're climbing this hill of God, Mount Zion, and they're singing these songs of ascent. It's a really beautiful section of the Bible, and I very intentionally in this series wanted to preach at least one psalm of ascent, which we're doing today. Over time, these psalms began to mean more to God's people than just merely, hey, we sing this on the way to church, or we sing this on the way to the festival, or we sing this on the way to whatever's going on in Jerusalem. It became Songs of hope. 
became songs of hope. And in the exile, God's people would sing these psalms as songs of hope, longing for the day when God would put His King in Jerusalem, longing for the day when the Lord would build the house, longing for the day when God would put His King there, and that all the nations then would stream to Jerusalem to worship God in His holy temple. In other words, these psalms take on a sort of eschatological, a a big picture end of what God is doing picture over time. And and as we look at Psalm 127, I want you to think in that light. Because when you stop and think about it, it it might make you, if Solomon was your king, it it might make you just a little bit uncomfortable to hear the king talk like this. It it may make you start to think, I wonder if he's saying he's going to kind of get lax on the job. Uh, Excuse me, king, I'm just curious. We will have a watchman though, right? I mean, uh, we're going to have somebody protecting the place, correct? It just might make you just a little bit uncomfortable. What Solomon, though, is driving out in this psalm is that at the end of the day, we must trust God. We must balance what we do and our trust of God. We must balance, must find the right balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. You'll notice the beautiful thing about this psalm is he's not saying don't build the house. He's not saying don't watch over the city. What he's saying is do it in recognition, in humility, that ultimately it's God who does it. Let me ask you all this question right now. Ultimately, in your heart, when you stop and think about it, how do you believe you're provided for? So often we think this is how I'm provided for, with my own two hands. My own blood, sweat, and tears. That's how I'm provided for. But the Bible says if you build the house, if you provide for your family, that you do it in vain unless it's the Lord who builds the house. Ultimately, let me ask you this question. How are you protected? So many of us live in constant fear. Just live in a fearful world. We're worried about what kind of protection we might receive. The Bible says, unless the Lord watches over the city, then those who watch over it labor in vain. Brothers and sisters, how are you protected? Are you living your life knowing that your most basic needs, at the most fundamental level, are provided for by God? Depend on God, my friends, for provision and protection, and it cultivates in us a sense of humility. This thing is not dependent on me, it's the Lord. It's the Lord that must do it. Here's second point this morning, number two. Not only must we depend on God for provision and protection, but second of all, depend on God so you can rest. Depend on God so you can rest. What does the Bible say? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, now, hear me very carefully and hear the Bible very carefully. This is not a discouragement toward hard work. It's a good thing to work hard. It's a good thing, right, to get up early in the morning or if you need to, to stay up late, to get work done, to get the things done that need to be done. Work is a a God-given gift, and He gave it to us before the fall. It's a good thing to work. 
So, so don't, don't mishear me. I, I think work is a good gift from God. But I'll also say and remind you, work is a terrible God. Work is an awful God. It's an awful thing to be a slave to. It's an awful thing to serve in its entirety. This is a, this is a verse that's, that's taking us away from anxious toil, from taking a good gift of God's and turning it into an idol. This is a picture of just wearing oneself out, of feeling like it all depends on you. And for what? For what? I love what the Bible says. It's in vain. Solomon's favorite word. It is vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? For he gives to his beloved sleep. Stop with me for just a second. I, I love this about the Bible. The Bible is almost always looking backwards and looking forward. It's almost always, it's always situated in the big picture of what God's doing. And so let's go back to creation for just a second. Six days of creation, right? And, and when we think about creation, God formed and filled the earth in those, those six days of creation. And on the, on, the, on the sixth day, God created the pinnacle of His creation. Man and woman created humanity to continue this work of stewarding the world that God had created. But then what happened on the seventh day? Hey, there we go. Thank you. He rested. These kids don't know. See, that's the thing I love about kids. They're not quite Baptist yet. You know what I mean? They, they're still got a little Pentecostal in them at this age. And I'm loving it. I love it. That's right. They rest, right? God rested. And, you know, oftentimes I think we treat that seventh day just almost like we don't really know what to do with it. God, God doesn't change. God, God doesn't need rest, and so God rested. Well, this is a picture, I, I would argue, of what God's goal is for creation. He created us ultimately to rest. Now, I don't think that means there will be no activity in heaven, but the things that make us need rest and not just enjoy rest these days are things that are results of the fall. You know, you've, you've heard the saying, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. We recognize that, but most of us have worked a day or two in our life, even those who love what we do. I love what I do. I love being a pastor. You give me a thousand lives, I'll be a pastor every time. But some days, brothers and sisters, it's work. I mean, some days I just have to say, all right, we're going to do it today. Don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it. Here's the reality. When we look at this, we must recognize that this is a picture of us resting in God, trusting God. I heard it once said, and I can't figure out who said this the first time, but I've heard it a lot. I heard somebody say one time, the most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is take a nap. The most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is take a nap. Blaise Pascal, one of my favorite philosophers and Christian thinkers, once said this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Think about that for a second. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Neil Postman wrote a book several years ago called Amusing Ourselves 
to death. And so we live in a world that constantly needs to be distracted, that's really good at leisure and really bad at rest, really good at being distracted. And anytime we have any hope of sitting by ourselves in a room alone and facing whatever's in here and facing whoever's up there, and I believe it's God, obviously, every time we get there, what do we have the opportunity to do? Reach in our pocket and get somebody there with us. Something there with us to be distracted again. You see, the goal of creation is rest, and we are so busy because we forget that God is in control. We are so busy, and we're working ourselves to death. But He gives to His beloved sleep. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you tonight. Whatever it is you're anxious about, whatever it is that you're worried about, Hand it over to the Lord, put your head on the pillow, and go to sleep. Martin Luther had the weight of the world on his shoulders during the Reformation, and I love what he would say about the Reformation, that we would preach the Word, and we would go to bed at night and go to sleep, and while we were sleeping, the Word was at work. God's got this. God's in control. Now, now certainly, there's no room in our lives for laziness with Too much rest or over-leisuring ourselves, but genuine, authentic rest in the Lord is a gift from God. And nothing says we trust the Lord. Like being worried, like being anxious, like having stuff left on the list. And putting it down, and going to bed, and laying down, and going to sleep. And trusting that while you're asleep, God is in control. Nothing humbles us. You know, I, I've, I've said this to my wife before. I've looked at her and said, one of the most frustrating things about my life is that I have to go to sleep at night. I never liked taking a nap in kindergarten. I never liked it. I just don't like it. I like taking a nap now. I've grown spiritually. godlier than I used to be they just don't like it but isn't that prideful like God needs me an extra eight hours a day he doesn't need me an extra eight hours a day it's good for me it's good for you to go to bed here's the final point third point this morning depend on God for your future Depend on God for your future. In the economy of the Old Testament, certainly in the economy of Solomon's life, your future was wrapped up in your offspring. This was the clear sign of the blessings of God, whether or not God had blessed you with children and specifically with heirs. This is especially important for someone like Solomon, who has been promised through his father a dynasty, a Davidic dynasty through whom the whole world would be blessed. But what does Solomon say? Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Not a reward we deserve, but a a grace from God. A blessing, something we don't deserve. 
Solomon is showing then an encounter, an encounter with enemies that involves his grown sons. He says, you won't be put to shame by your enemies when you've got these grown, the, your large adult sons with you who can make sure that you don't get into trouble. I've never been involved in a posse of any sort, but I feel like if I ever was, a good place to go, be, if you've got grown sons, get your sons to be a part of the posse. Let's go take care of business. Hope it never has to happen. Here's the reality. We can look at this text and think it means, well, if you, if you want to be blessed by God, you must have children. And that's a challenge, I think, for folks who, who have wanted children and can't or who have struggled with those things, with infertility or losing children. It can be a challenge to read passages like this, think about passages like this. But here's what I think Solomon is driving at, is we must trust God for our future. It's God who's in control of our future. It's God who's in control of our dynasty. It's God who's in charge of our legacy. When we don't have children or God's not blessed us in this particular way, that's even more reason to trust God for your future, not less. You see, the big picture of this psalm, I think, is Solomon's desire to demonstrate what it means to walk humbly before God Believing Him and trusting Him to fulfill the promises that He's made. And here's the beauty of this psalm, in my opinion. Is that ultimately, in the big picture, this psalm is fulfilled through one of Solomon's sons. This psalm is fulfilled through a son of Solomon who didn't just talk about being humble but was humble and obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And though God over the years and David over the years had a quiver full of potential messiahs, people who could stand there, people who could be with them, only one, only one, didn't just meet our enemies at the gate, but he was the one who went outside the gate and dealt with our enemies finally and fully at the cross. So that we're no longer worried about the world, the flesh, and the devil because Christ disarmed them at the cross. He met our accusers. He met our problem head on. This psalm, this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who gives us the ability to not only approach the throne of God boldly as sons and daughters, but also gives us the grace, the example, the promise, and the Holy Spirit Himself indwelling us to actually walk humbly before God. Brothers and sisters, my prayer this morning is that you would trust and depend on God. I pray that you would depend on God for your provision and your protection. Not to be lazy. Not to just say, well, I guess God will do it. But to work hard knowing that God works through our hard work and that ultimately it's Him we depend on. My prayer is that you'll depend on God so you can rest. He gives to His beloved sleep. And brothers and sisters, my hope and my prayer is that each and every one of you here
would depend on God for your future. Because the future He can give you is so much better than the future you can give yourself. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus for the first time, if you've never put your trust and faith in Him, if, you, if you've not yet begun to depend on Him, this altar is open to you. If you would turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus Christ, I believe with all my heart He will save you today. Second of all, you may be looking, maybe looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. And finally, you may be a believer. You may say, Pastor, I've just not been living in the humility that I should be living in. This altar is open to you. I'd be happy to pray with you. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together with your people today. And Lord, my prayer is that each and every one of us would walk depending totally on you. Depending on you for protection, for provision, depending on you so we can rest and trusting you with our future. And not just our future in this life, but our future beyond the grave. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.